Magnus Podcast, Episode 4, Bonus Episode, Three Beers with John Johnson. John Johnson, I think we can do that. This is John Johnson. I'm one of the voices of the Magnus Podcast, a project of the Alberta's Magnus Institute. And somebody told me that we need to do something a little more fun once in a while. So we've got a reoccurring segment that we're going to do our best to release somewhat regularly. And this is called Three Beers with John Johnson. In this segment, I drink three real beers with real friends of mine. Some you've heard of, some who you haven't, some who only became friends of mine after the third beer of taping. Today, we're talking about Buddhism and Christianity. To what extent are they compatible or incompatible? The answer may surprise you. And our guest tonight, drumroll please, Dr. Thomas Katoy. Cheers. Doctor, thanks Cheers. for being here. Thank you. Thank Likewise. Dr. Thomas Katoy is a professor of Christology and Cultures at the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University, which is part of the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley. Correct. But we don't have to tell anybody that. Just kidding. He holds degrees in economics and philosophy from Oxford. Wow. Are you a Rhodes Scholar, or is that no? Only I'm a few? not a Rhodes Scholar because you started. It's all, you know. In order to be a Rhodes Scholar, you need to be a British citizen or a citizen of a Commonwealth country, and I'm neither of those. You don't two sound things. like a British citizen. No, I'm, I don't. So and you also have a PhD in systematic theology from Boston College. Did you study under Father Lamb? Was he there? He was there when I was starting. Then he left to go to Ave Maria. I actually did not study with him. I did meet him. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a very nice man. He passed away recently. Right. So. Right. Dr. Katoy is the author of Divine Contingency, Theories of Divine Embodiment in Maximus the Confessor, and Sankapa. Yeah. Am I pronounced that right? Yeah, this is already from quite a few years ago, but that was my first book. You know, it's a development of my dissertation. Excellent. Actually. So. Now, what I'm most impressed by is that you are probably the only person I've ever spoken to, at least that I know of, that has a Neil Obstat. Oh. Your pers- you as a person... But there are quite a few other people out there who have it, but maybe they haven't told you. Probably so, not. So. They keep it close to the mm-hmm. vest. Mm-hmm. But you haven't. Just explain to us what that means. You have a nihil obstat. Yes, some people think that nihil obstats are just for books, and you can get a nihil obstat for a book. But if you are a professor of theology at an institution that is accredited by the Congregation for Catholic Education, you can actually request a nihil obstat for yourself. Uh, so, um, I received an Ehilopsat recently, um, really just, uh, because, you know, I've been teaching at the Jesuit School of Theology, which is a pontifically accredited institution for the past 12 years. If you're a tenured professor there, you can apply. And so I received one after a couple of years of Are waiting. Are you the only professor at the Jesuit School that has a Neil Obstin? No, there are, I think, another, as of now, I think there are another three. 
you know, out of 18, you know, so there are a few. What is that guarantee? Does that guarantee us that you will not utter a word of heresy? Largely, the presumption is that, yes, you're not going to teach heresy to your students. Are you magisterially uh, guaranteed not to? Like, is it like, in in other words, like a bishop can't speak heresy from his chair? You know, it's a sort of like, uh, it's a kind of, it's like a credential, you see. It's like saying, you know, the the congregation has decided that this person is able to teach theology in the name of the Holy See without misleading people. So nothing that you've written that they reviewed yes. is erroneous. Is, essentially. Or, you know, and the syllabi are, you know, also acceptable, you see. Yeah. You know, when you put together a syllabus, sometimes you actually will include material that is not necessarily orthodox but i think what happens is that students have to be exposed to material that is not necessarily orthodox because they have to be able to actually discern where the problems are you know so you know you need to include things which are problematic because people actually need to know where the problems actually are but you know this is the attitude is always what matters so great this is great what do you think about this idea of the catholic bubble university that students shouldn't be uh exposed to anything contrary to what they already believe do you think do you see that as a problem? Because I, I really see that as a sort of breeding ground for fideism. And so even in some of the more what we would call quote unquote orthodox Catholic schools are really doing a disservice precisely for that reason, because it's just an echo chamber. See, this can be a problem because I think, you know, we do live in such a pluralistic society nowadays, especially in the United States, where it's essentially impossible to sort of pretend to yourself that you know, everybody is a Catholic and everybody is necessarily going to agree with you. So I think it is actually important to expose students, even sort of Orthodox Catholic students, to ideas that are not necessarily Orthodox because they have to be able to adjudicate between these different ideas and learn, you know, where the problems actually are, you see. So you wrote a paper, it's very fascinating to me, called The Empty Throne, Religious Imagery and Presence in Byzantine and Buddhist Art. And you compare in this paper... The uh, the empty throne of of uh, Buddha and the empty tomb of Christ, and I think at first glance, right, if you were to come across this paper or even be having this discussion in a typical, say, junior college, the discussion would basically boil down to something like: there's an empty throne in Buddhism, there's an empty tomb in Christianity, therefore Christianity is just recycled Buddhism and worthless. Uh, and your paper does a great job of breaking down uh, not only that question, but how do we even have this discussion of comparative religions? Or comparative theology. See, right. I'd rather use that term. So let me explain a little bit what I did here. You see, this, ju- this article was written for what at the time was the Journal of Interreligious Dialogue, which now has changed its name into Journal of Interreligious Studies. You know, so, and this is an online publication. I'm still on the board of this journal. And I wrote this article already quite a few years ago, admittedly, you know, but I think it's still an interesting piece. Uh, now, um, I think some of your uh, listeners may have heard of comparative religions and some ha- may have heard of comparative theology. I think it's useful to clarify what the difference is between these two. Uh, now, comparative religion is something that has been around for a really long time, since probably the 18th century. And it started in the German universities uh, when uh, some of these Buddhist and Hindu texts first started to be translated into European languages, really in the late 18th century. And people started to read things like the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas, 
really in German, you know, for the first time. And people try to explore the points of contact between the different religious traditions from a neutral perspective. So see, comparative religions tries to explore different religious traditions from a neutral perspective. However, this is very different from comparative theology. Comparative theology is really a branch of theology that has developed in the last, I would say, maybe 25 years, 30 years, not, not really more than that, especially thanks to uh, Francis Clooney, who is a Jesuit who te now teaches at Harvard University. And comparative theology uh, attempts to explore the points of contact, but also the differences between different religious traditions from a theological perspective. So if you're a Catholic, let's say, you know, you can sort of start reading a text from your tradition that addresses a particular theme. Then you can move on and read a text from a non-Christian tradition that addresses an analogous theme. And then you go back and read again the text from your own tradition. And then in the light of the text from the other tradition, you can discern what is really specific to your own tradition that you had not really noticed. You know, what in that process is theology per se versus merely sociology or a study of uh, religion from a cultural perspective? Well, because for a Catholic, right, theology is something very specific. Theology is uh, really God's knowledge of himself gratuitously revealed to the blessed. And in that sense, and which, which I agree is, is a very particular sense. Theology really can't be done for a Catholic anyway from the outside. It can only be done. It can only be lived. And how does that notion of theology, which is the Catholic notion of theology, right? You could correct me. You have the Neil uh, But how does that notion of theology even fit into this idea of comparative quote unquote theology? Is that, is that even reconcilable? See, you know, um, theology is, you know, an endeavor that tries to reflect speculatively on ultimate questions. See, um, in a sense, you could argue that, uh, you know, other religious traditions also engage in what we call theology because they also try to reflect speculatively on questions endeavor. of ultimate what, concern. So what is, what is the, what is the distinction then between what you would call philosophy and theology? Well, theology is also, uh, is not also, I shouldn't say that, but you know, theology uh, derives its first principles from divine revelation. If you're a Christian, right? Whereas philosophy is not going to do that. But let's just give you an example. Okay. So I'm not even going to draw from why, from my article. I'm just going to, to use an example that Francis Clooney uses in his book, uh, on Hinduism and Christianity called Hindu God, Christian God. You know, he, uh, in chapter four of that book, he talks about the sacred heart. See, and, uh, you know, everybody knows about the sacred heart, obviously, but, uh, for instance, uh, Karl Rahne, who's a very influential 20th century theologian, actually does write, surprisingly perhaps, quite a lot about the Sacred Heart in his theological investigations, you know, and especially before the Second Vatican Council, everybody knew about the Sacred Heart. All Catholics knew about the Sacred Heart, you see. Right. Then, you know, Francis Clooney studied some Hindu traditions where some uh, traditions, for instance, worship the feet of certain deities, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like Vishnu, for instance. And he says, well, what is it then that is different here? You know, so the Christians worship the heart of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. And some Hindus worship the feet of Vishnu. So in some ways, you have two different religious traditions that uh, focus on a particular incarnate embodied manifestations of uh, their own deity. 
and they offer veneration and honor to this particular manifestation. What is it that these different traditions are trying to accomplish? And in what way is that actually different? And he then argues that, uh, you know, what really is very different is that in the uh, tradition of um, the Sacred Heart that started with Marguerite Maria Lacoque, but then continues with other theologians, you know, there is a very strong sense that the fullness of the uh, divinity is really present in the incarnate heart of Jesus. Uh, whereas, you know, when you see the feet of Vishnu, they are a sort of, um, you know, symbolic manifestations of the deity's power, the fact that, you know, he can sort of walk over the whole world in three strides. But, uh, you know, Hindus don't necessarily believe that there is only one single incarnation that contains the fullness of the divinity. You actually have a plurality of incarnations or manifestations of the deity, and none of them actually is as full an incarnation as, you know, the incarnation of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, then you see a superficial comparison may lead you to conclude, oh, look, as you just said earlier on, Christians believe in the incarnation and Hindus also believe in the incarnation. So therefore, all religions are the same. But in fact, if you actually study this properly, you actually come to understand that what Hindus talk about when they talk about incarnation is very different from what Christians talk about when they talk about incarnation. So going deeper, you actually realize what is really unique about the Christian understanding of incarnation that is very different. What is uh, that? And... Well, the Christian understanding of incarnation presupposes that there is only one instance uh, in history when the second person of the Trinity actually becomes fully present in uh, our human nature, in the particular historically uh, verifiable person of Jesus Christ. And he never Whereas becomes Hinduism, unincarnate also. Yes, right? exactly. Very good. You right. see, you know, once Christ takes over our humanity, he retains his humanity for all eternity. Whereas, you know, in Hinduism, you have many, many different incarnations. They call them avatars. You know, many will have heard about Krishna or Rama, but there are many more. Mm -hmm. You know, and the idea is that, you know, Vishnu comes, takes over this form, fights evil for a certain period of time, then abandons this form and goes back. And an eternal uh, recycling. Yes, and there is no sense that Krishna or Rama are actually human. This is also very important. You see, they just are visible manifestations of this deity, Apparently, but there is no sense yeah. that Vishnu becomes a human person the way we are. Mm -hmm. You see, so that is very different, you know, from the Christian understanding of incarnation. So this is what you see. Comparative theology is trying to do. Comparative theology is not syncretistic. Comparative theology is certainly not trying to say that all religions are the same, and comparative theology is not trying to assess different religious traditions from a neutral perspective. Comparative theology is trying to explore the points of contact between different traditions, but also is also trying to articulate more explicitly what it is that really makes uh, our Christian tradition really unique. Yeah, I guess at first glance, I wouldn't be willing to call comparative theology under that understanding of what it is. I wouldn't call it theology as such. I mean, it seems sociological, uh, but it I, I don't think we could call it theology or could we in other in other words is the, the theology right the logos of god something that can't really be studied from the outside only live because god's knowledge of himself is his life and, but see, and the only way that he communicates knowledge of himself intimately right i mean i'm sure there's obscure ways to know god you can know that he exists you know like like a like a thing over in the bushes, you see the bushes shaking. So you can know him through his uh, effects, right? Which that's not proper to theology. But really theology itself, it would seem, 
requires a sharing in God's life. But see, but this is, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't disagree with you because you see, if you really are trying to be a comparative theologian, you have to do this from a perspective of faith. So you are grounded in your own tradition, see, and you accept God's revelation in Christ. And then you are essentially asking yourself, so, you know, I am someone who accepts God's revelation in Christ, but I encounter these different religious claims made by people who don't believe in Christ. What do I make about these religious claims? You know, what is it about my own beliefs that is different from what other people actually believe? You see, so it's not really sociological because we are not exploring, you know, the practices uh, or the sociological impact of these other religious beliefs. I'm really just exploring, you know, the speculative traditions and the speculative claims that other religions are actually making. You know, you can certainly engage in a sociological study of what other people believe and practice, but this is not what comparative theology is actually really trying sure. to do. Okay. So, so I, I wouldn't think. So it's it a philosophical investigation of cultus. Yes. Right. Let's see another example that I could use is um, images. I've done some writing on that. I'm actually writing another project on on this right now. You know. Um, so in Hinduism, for instance, there is a very strong belief that once certain images have been blessed, I'm just going to use this for the lack of a better word. The deity is fully present in the image. Oh, that's nice. See? But Christians, obviously, Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians who venerate images, I'm not talking about, you know, Protestant Christians who don't use images here, you know, they don't believe that. You know, they believe that images are pointers towards a reality that transcends the image. Sure. You see. Or windows. Or windows, yes, you see. So, you know, Basil of Caesarea, uh, in uh, his uh, treatise on the Holy Spirit, in book three, he says that uh, every image refers to the prototype. You know, yes. epiton prototypa anaferetai. So, uh, clearly the image is not the prototype. But in Hinduism, there is actually a belief that the image really is the deity that is represented by the image. You know, hence you have all these rituals where, you know, you entertain the images and you have dancing in front of the images in some temples in South India that I've actually seen in Tamil Nadu a few years ago. Yeah. You know, which looks very archaic to us, but, you know, it's done actually, you know, regularly. So, again, you know, people might say, oh, look, Catholic Christians venerate images and Hindus also venerate images. Look, it's the same because uh, Catholic Christians are idolatrous because they have all these images. But if you actually really explore the theological rationale behind the veneration of images, you see that there is a very significant difference between the way Catholic Christians and Orthodox Christians relate to sacred images and the way Hindus relate to images, or also Buddhists. It's very different. I have done a translation of a text by uh, Theodore the Studite, who is a 8th, 9th century Byzantine author who wrote quite extensively about iconoclasm, and he really emphasizes the fact that these images are just pointers, mm. you know, towards a reality that transcends them. Unlike the Eucharist, see, the Eucharist right. is the fullness of the divine in, in, in our tradition. It's know. interesting because even um, there is some similarity, I think, some confluence between the Roman Catholic understanding of the Eucharist and Eastern Catholic understanding of icons, uh, even in like a Byzantine Catholic. You know, I think I have to correct what you just said please, a little bit. Yes, please. Because I don't think so. I don't think it's really correct because... You know, in the Eucharist, you have the fullness of the presence of Christ. You oh, can't yeah. say that Christ is substantially present in an icon. 
That is not possible. You can't say that. See, the icon is appointed towards Christ, but the icon is not consubstantial to Christ. You know, you know that this was actually condemned as a heresy in the ninth century. Theodore the Studite actually writes about some right. priests who would take a piece of wood from the icon and put it in the chalice during the liturgy and drink it. Oh, you know, look at that, very unwholesome. <laughs> because they confuse the way in which Christ was present in the Eucharist and Christ was present in the icon. And he's and he is someone who defends icon veneration, but he says, but this is idolatrous, this is excessive sure. because they are confusing two things which are distinct. Right. See, now in Hinduism. Well, obviously there is no Eucharist. There is a belief that the deity is fully present in the image. But this is not something that Christians actually believe, because images are not idols. They're just pointers. Otherwise, we would be idolatrous, you see. That is not what we believe. So it's interesting to explore, again, how images are actually understood conceptually in different ways. You know, so... It is interesting. Uh, why why would you say that there is uh, the, even the tradition of Eucharistic adoration is really prevalent in the West and not so much in the East? The Orthodox East? Yeah. Well, you know, this is a very different issue, but um, question. But I've actually heard different theories about this, and honestly, I'm not sure that there is a very definitive answer to this question. Some Orthodox have told me that the reason why the uh, Eucharistic adoration never really developed in the Christianist is that there were really no heresies that questioned the real presence. <laughs> so there was almost no real reason to do that. Right. So they thought Eucharistic adoration is kind of remedial. Oh, that makes sense. But I'm not so yeah. sure that this is a very good answer. Uh, no, that's good because it's, it's even possible. the case that um, Eucharistic adoration today, you know, in your typical parish setting, for instance, is actually more common in the... I guess you might say the more modernist parishes that have, you know, a side chapel reserve. It's possible. But even in like your, your more traditional, traditionalist, uh, even Latin mass parishes, uh, Eucharistic adoration, apart from the liturgy or even, you know, apart from, uh, Holy Thursday is not really prevalent. It's true. You know, in 2000 and my goodness, it's already been quite a few years, 2013. I taught uh, for a couple of weeks at the um, um, Catholic University of Ukraine in Lviv, which is a very interesting institution. And uh, uh, this is an institution that belongs to the Greek Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. So, you know, you have a, this is what, the largest Eastern Rite Catholic Church. And I was told by some people there, and it's very interesting, that some of their parishes, they have this whole debate on whether they should have Eucharistic adoration or not. See, these people are in communion with Rome, but they use the, uh, you know, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, etc. And they say, well, really, Eucharistic adoration is a Latin practice. And if we really want to be faithful to our own Byzantine liturgical tradition, even within the Catholic Church, we should not have Eucharistic adoration because this is Western. So some parishes have it and some parishes don't have it because, you know, it's not really part of their own tradition. It's not that they question that it's legitimate or not, it is legitimate, but they just say that it's not really part of their tradition. You see, they just yeah. don't really do it, you know. Yeah. And uh, the same way as the rosary. I mean, some people in these Eastern Catholic churches, sure. they'd rather say sure. the acathist instead of the rosary because they say, oh, yes, but the rosary is Western, so we just don't do that, right. you know. But, yeah. Okay. Well, that's probably something we're not going to... So we're, we're not going to yes. heal the, the gap between East and West tonight over three beers, but... Uh, let's get, get back to this this question of comparative religion. So, for a Catholic, uh, you know, especially for Saint Thomas Aquinas, for instance, 
religion is a virtue. It's a virtue under justice. That is the the giving of the giving to God what is His due. It's justice unto God. And if that's the case, the argument could be made that there's really no such thing as multiple religions at all because you're either giving God his due or you're not. That is, the justice unto God is only rendered in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from that, there is no justice unto God. Therefore, there is no religion. So how do we as Catholics approach this question of uh, comparative religions when in one sense, there is no such thing as multiple religions. See, I think even Aquinas would probably agree that there is such a thing as perfect justice and there is such a thing as imperfect injustice, sorry, imperfect justice. And there are all sorts of degrees of justice. You know, if you look at Dominus Jesus that was published in the year 2000, it's already been quite some time. You know, this document, very much in line with what the Second Vatican Council actually teaches, does acknowledge that uh, while the fullness of the truth is only present in the Catholic Church, there are elements of truth that are also present in other churches. And there is the whole hierarchy, essentially, between you know different churches. You have the Catholic Church, then you have the Orthodox churches, then you have what the document calls different ecclesial communities, you know, and then you have non-Christian traditions. And, you know, if you read Nostra Etate, that was published in, you know, in this 1965, I believe, by the Second Vatican Council, you know, uh, the document does say that there are elements of truth in other religious traditions, but they are incomplete, you see. Uh, so I think you could say that there are elements, let's say, in Hinduism or in Buddhism that points, point, plural, towards the fullness of the truth in Christ, but obviously they always fall short. Okay, you know? so that's... That's a, that's a great answer, and it, it leads to another question. When we're speaking of justice, what good is incomplete? In other words, if I were, you know, when I bought these beers, uh, you know, let's say you owe me ten ninety nine, you know, the, the clerk says, and, um, and I say, well, I have imperfect ten ninety nine. like here's $3. Uh, that doesn't get the beers. So what, and I'm sure there is, there is, right? Maybe tell me what is the merit in imperfect justice? Like it's true that I guess $3 would be more perfect than if I only had $1. Probably, yes. Right? You know, but I still don't way, get the beer. So what is no, it worth? But see, it's like the story of the widow that only gives her, her 10 cents uh, <laughs> to the, you know, the treasury in the temple, you know, because this is all that she has. And uh, sometimes people simply have not been exposed to the truth and all they can do is actually give, you know, God what they've actually been given. You know, in that sense, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, Karl Rahner, you know, very controversially in the 1960s talked about anonymous Christians. And I know this is a very, you know, debatable point, but essentially the point that he wanted to make is that, you know, there are people who essentially have not encountered Christ in their lives but nonetheless follow their own conscience and do what in their conscience is the best, you know. And he believes that if a person has not encountered Christ and follows his or her conscience, this is going to be acceptable to God, even if this falls short from the standards of perfect justice. Sure, I mean, and we don't Christ. we don't even need to give Ronner that credit. That yeah. might even be due to Saint Paul who. Shows up. I'm just thinking about yeah. someone more modern, but yes. <laughs> right. He, you know, of he says, I see you're very religious in many respects. 
And you have an unnamed God, and I'm going to show you his name. And in the letter to the Romans, he talks about, you know, the law of God that is written in everyone's heart, you see. Right. So then there are sort of, uh, uh, and, you know, Gregory of Nyssa talks about, for instance, the common conceptions of humanity, you know, in his treatise on the soul and the resurrection, he says that there are certain truths that are sort of present even in the heart of the pagans. So every human person, we could argue, or you, you might argue, that Every, every human person is wired by nature into some sort of religiosity. Like, like everybody so. is wired to offer something unto God, whether you're a Spartan throwing your firstborn child into a cauldron, which is, I mean, that's almost heroic in a, in a sense of piety, like to offer that unto God. Yeah, Aquinas talks about the desiderium naturale, you know, the fact that we all have a natural desire for God. It's just that not everybody is going to be able to have this desire fulfilled in his or her earthly life. You know, beyond that, we don't know. But uh, Right, right. Uh, so let's talk about the article. Oh, I see. Okay. The, if you want to, can yeah, we? Yeah, of course. This, the, the difference between this, the empty throne of Buddha and the empty tomb of Christ. You make this point in your article, uh, that the seat for Buddha is ultimately and intentionally empty. Tell us about the difference. See, you know, the reason why I, uh, actually ended up writing this is that, uh, a few years before I, wrote this, so it's already quite some time ago, I visited the Basilica in Torcello, which is an island in the lagoon near Venice. And in this basilica, there is a mosaic from the 7th century depicting the Last Judgment. And this is really following you know, Byzantine religious, the canons of Byzantine religious art. Uh, and according to Byzantine religious art, uh, you know, there is a sort of uh, fixed iconographical pattern called etimasia, which is uh, the preparation of the throne. So you have an empty throne uh, with some angels around it, which is being prepared for Christ, the judge, who is going to come and you know, pass judgment at the whole of humanity at the end of time. And you know, the meaning of the Etimasia is that we are now in this sort of intermediate period between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Therefore, as long as the throne of Christ remains empty, you still have time to repent of your sins. But this throne is not going to remain empty forever because one day Christ will actually come back and sit on this throne, which is being prepared for him, and pass judgment on the whole mm-hmm. of humanity. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when I saw this... Uh, Mosaic. I had actually seen uh, reproductions of uh, uh, sort of ancient Indian Buddhist art, uh, um, which sometimes represents the empty throne of the Buddha uh, as uh, a sort of iconographical uh, portrayal of the Buddha's continuous presence and absence in this world. Now, I probably need to give a little bit of background information, but uh, you know there is this belief, you know, in most Buddhist schools, you know, and I don't need to go into all details, that uh, ultimately we don't have a self and ultimately everything is empty. Uh, By the way, this does not mean that nothing exists, you know, this does not mean that nothing is there, this does not mean that this is a nihilistic tradition, but this simply means that there is no self. So the empty throne is a kind of allegorical representation of the fact that the Buddha himself was actually empty of any individual essence. Uh, so when you see some of the disciples uh, and some of the supernatural beings that look like angels, sort of is that Dhar- Dharmakaya? Yes, you know, around the empty throne of the Buddha. What is the difference between Dharmakaya and Nirvana? 
Well, this is a very good question because according to certain traditions, there isn't any. You know, some traditions will say that the Dharmakaya, which is the ultimate body of the Buddha, is the state of Nirvana. Which you say in the paper is emptiness without limit. Yes, you could say that. You know, so Nirvana uh, is uh, uh, the uh, you know the extinction of samsara. But according to some tradition, there is really no difference between samsara and its extinction because we are simply not aware of the fact that we are always in Nirvana at all times. Uh, we just have to become aware of that. But perhaps we don't need to go into all this detail. But you know what I really just wanted to say is that you see, you know, in Christianity you have this tradition where the absence of Christ is something which is provisional because eventually Christ is supposed to come back and return. Because Christ is incarnate for all times, as we said before. You know, the incarnation is not something that has actually stopped at the ascension. Christ has retained the fullness of humanity and will retain the fullness of humanity for all eternity. But in Buddhism, there is no such belief. The belief is, you know, Christ, Buddha was manifest in time for some time. But eventually, you know, he lets go of his body and he just returns to emptiness. And the empty throne is a reminder of the emptiness of all beings. But for the Buddha, even when he was in his body... He was not in his body, right? He was conventionally in his body, but ultimately not in his body. You know, there is a teaching of two truths in Buddhism, you know. Right. Whereas you cannot apply this to Christ, because Christ was always fully, you know, the divinity of the second person, the second person of the Trinity was always fully in the person of Christ, in the hypostatic union. Uh, so um, you have um, a teaching, uh, I mean, Christianity really affirms the ultimacy of our individual subjectivity. Buddhism does not affirm the ultimacy of individual subjectivity. Buddhism affirms or claims that individual subjectivity is conventional and eventually is going to be transcended and surpassed. You know? What is the relationship between the empty throne of Christ and the empty tomb of Christ? Well, see, see, we are actually talking about something very different because, you see, the empty tomb is not something that is going to be filled again. You know, the empty tomb simply represents Christ's final victory over death, mm. you know. And um, this is something which is bringing about an irreversible ontological change in the structure, the history of the cosmos because it's inaugurating, you know, the final eschatological transfiguration of the whole of humanity. Christ is the firstborn of all, you know, uh, the first one who was actually resurrected. Uh, the empty throne symbolizes the fact that he has power to judge over us. You know, so in a sense, you know, they are just two different uh, manifestations of different aspects of his ministry. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the comparison here did not really focus very much on the empty tomb. I was focusing sure, sure. more on, you know, the empty throne in this particular mosaic and the empty throne in the, in the Buddhist tradition. Essentially, you know, we are not going to have a situation where the Buddha comes back and sits on this throne. This is not going to happen because the Buddha is gone. He wouldn't even want to. Of course not. Because the idea is that, you know, once you actually leave behind this, you know, body that is corrupt and imperfect, then you just certainly don't want to come back to it. See, whereas Christ has not left our body behind. So I would say, you know, in a way, the Christian tradition offers a more optimistic understanding of subjectivity or embodiment because it actually shows that uh, it is something that can be cherished. When the explicit end of the Buddhist pursuit is emptiness without limit, how is it that, I mean, in what, in what sense are you saying that that's not nihilistic? Well, I actually would correct what you just said a little bit because it's not that the goal is emptiness. The goal is an awareness of this emptiness. Uh, 
because the emptiness is already there no matter what you do. Uh, it's just that according to these traditions, you're just not aware of it. You know, so you have to become aware of the fact that your subjectivity is just a conventional reality that is eventual, that is not something that is going to endure ultimately. Uh, but it's not that there is nothing there. You know, Buddhism does not teach that nothing is there. What Buddhism is there? will teach that there is a flux of phenomena of atoms. There is actually subjectivity. I'm really talking to you. Yeah, but even you are talking to me. Even your awareness of that of that flux is essentially an apparition. Yes, it's conventional, but so, it's there. It's just not ultimate. But it's but it's there, like a figment of your imagination. No, it's there. there. It's just it's really there. It's just that it's not ultimate. It's not destined to last. You know, you know, uh, it's very interesting. They will, for instance, say in some Tibetan traditions that you really have a self because if you don't have a self, you're actually not going to be able to practice and get enlightened. So uh, you can't say that nothing is there because if nothing were there, who is going to get enlightened? Someone has to be enlightened. You see, it's a paradox. But it's it, a very different enlight way of enlightenment means that you realize nothing's really there. You realize that nothing is ultimately there. But conventionally, a lot of things are there. All sorts of phenomena are there. Natural law there is there. Could you, in that respect, while I open this third beer, which, oh, this is, the which third, is probably the, 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 Nursia beer. Yeah, probably the, best, be the beer best beer in the one, whole yes. world, I buy only Italian beer for my Italian guests tonight. Could you synthesize the difference and perhaps the dichotomy between the Buddhist notion of uh, nirvana and the Catholic notion of... Salvation? Well, even I would say, just to keep it epistemological, contemplation or theoria. Ooh, see, very interesting. See, the problem with that question is that, you know, essentially, even within Buddhism, you have two very distinct understandings of nirvana. And even Buddhists, oh, see, we have to have the sound of beer close to the microphone. Otherwise, it's not interesting so enough. Good. Yeah. See, early Buddhism. Let me just say this very clear, uh, very, you know, in a very simplified way. Early Buddhism believed that, you know, you live in this world of suffering called samsara. You want to leave the world of suffering behind. And if you practice meditation and, um, you know, penance very consistently, you will enter into the realm of nirvana, which means you leave behind the world of samsara completely. You know, and really you have to be a monk to do that, otherwise you're never going to manage. This is the old tradition of Theravada, which is still practiced in Sri Lanka, Thailand, etc. However, there is a sort of shift at some point where Nirvana is no longer understood as something which is ontologically distinct from uh, Samsara. But uh, both the Mahayana and the Vajrayana tradition of Tibet, which many people may be familiar with, say that really Nirvana is the real nature of Samsara. So we really are in nirvana all the time already, but we're just not aware of it. So it's not that you leave samsara behind to enter into nirvana, but you realize that you are in nirvana all along. Of course. You and it, could, it couldn't be any other way. Yeah. So you I mean, are, that's not really that groundbreaking. So nirvana itself, it's just the realization that you are already there. So it's, it's somewhat right. different, you see. But in this second understanding of nirvana, uh, there is also a little bit of a shift because the idea is that while the earlier understanding said, you know, you just enter nirvana and then you're just gone. That's it. The second understanding of nirvana says that once you have achieved nirvana, this achievement of nirvana becomes the springboard for you actually going out to help everybody else achieve nirvana as well. 
And so you then have to engage in the practice of contemplation, but also in the practice of the virtues, to make sure that other people also achieve nirvana. See? So, the, uh, you know, this is why they actually talk about active nirvana, as opposed to the earlier understanding of nirvana, because this active nirvana is one where you actually go and do it. It seems things. like there's a little too much of the self left in active nirvana well, for but it you actually use a, to be nirvana. But it's a conventional self. You're aware that this is a conventional self, you see. So you're, you're basically... Uh, Directing yourself on stage, somewhat knowingly, yes, you know. So you know, you know that you don't really have a self, but you direct the conventional self to help other people. Oh yeah, get to the same. I'm goal. just doing that right now, by the way. See, you're I, directing your conventional. Oh self. yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. So you know, the point I'm is that, in some sense, I would argue that you know, in the Catholic tradition, you know, uh, you know the. It's kind of closer to the second understanding of Nirvana than the first one. Because it's not that holiness is something that you pursue just for your own sort of uh, private benefit. You know, ho- holiness is something which is communal. You know, because we believe as Catholic in the communion of saints. So now I'm going to try the third beer too. It is uh, so you know, Catholics believe in the communion of saints. So, yeah, but you know, that's, whatever you that's do, nothing like the the active nirvana or any course, nirvana. But I'm just sort of saying, you see, that there are analogies. But you have to also, say things like that to get jobs. Well, but, you know, there are analogies, but there are also real differences. Just kidding. Yeah. Right. It's very different. I know, very, I agree with you. It's not the same thing at all. You know, because, you know, Christians certainly believe that, you know, you, in the communion of saints, remain who you are. Right. It's not that you stop being who you are. It's not that your dear that ones you're, you're, who pass you're, away you're, you're, you're stop most, being most who they are. Right. Exactly. You become more fully who you're you actualized. are. actualized. So, in that sense, you know, the idea of active nirvana and the idea of you sort of uh, helping other people achieve salvation within the communion of saints, again, is another example of something which looks similar at the beginning. But then if you dig deeper, you realize that there are very real conceptual differences. Incompatibilities. Yes, exactly. You see. So, you see. How would you synthesize the incompatibility? Well, the incompatibility is simply that, uh, you know, within Christianity, you actually do believe in the ultimacy, the permanence of your own individual self. You know, you are going to live for all eternity in a relationship with God. Sure. If you achieve what you've been created to achieve. Isn't there an even more fundamental ontological incompatibility? I mean, that is everything you've described about Nirvana. You prefaced it by saying this is not really nihilistic, but then... For X, Y, and Z reasons. I mean, everything you're saying about it seems to be rather nihilistic. Like you realize your nothingness. That's the, that's sort of oh, your emptiness. Yeah. See, I keep this. You think there's a distinction between emptiness and nothingness? Well, they always make this distinction in the sense that uh, they don't say that there is nothing. You know, they say that there is something which is fleeting and provisional. It's saying that something is fleeting and provisional is different from saying that nothing is there. You know, it's like saying, you know, I, I, okay, I have a good example there. You know, they talk about, for instance, the sound of a flute. You know, uh-huh. so you know, if you sort of blow air inside the flute, the flute makes sounds. But then, once you stop blowing air into the flute, the flute stops making sounds. The sounds are actually there for a moment. You can't say that the sounds did not exist. But once you stop blowing air into the flute, the sound stops. So. I don't actually remember who says this. I think maybe Chandra Kirti, who is an earlier author from the Mahayana tradition, but he says the self is like that. The self is like the sound that comes from the flute once you blow into the into the flute, you see. So it's real for the moment. 
But that's but real. Then it stops existing. But, yeah, but but not really. I mean, in one sense, yes. In one sense, no. Like, exactly. So, in one sense, this beer is fleeting and provisional. Uh, and in another sense, it's being assumed into something eternal through my personality. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, being tends to be like be that's that's what, that's what goodness is, right? It's a being a being's tendency to be most fully. And that seems strikingly absent in the Buddhist tradition. Right, it's not there, you know. So that is really a difference, you know. So, but isn't uh, that at the heart of really everything? To speak like a Buddhist, uh, I think you know. I mean, from a Christian perspective, of course, you're going to say this is not satisfactory. This is not enough. This does not really sort of even from the aspirations of my heart, etc. From an Aristotelian perspective, from a Socratic perspective, of course, because then you use a different, you know, system of ontology. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe this could be a second uh, episode of the podcast, but I wouldn't call Christianity a system. I wouldn't call. Oh, it's not a system per se. It's an encounter, primarily. Okay, you know, okay. Then uh, theology can be systematized if you try to come up with a sort of uh, coherent articulation of what this encounter actually means. It slips away. You know, but that's yeah, different, you know. Yeah. So, uh, right, right. Do you like that beer? This third one I haven't yet tried. Oh, so I'm going oh, to try the third one. It's the best. The Nursia beer. This is a beer made by the monks of Norcia. In Italy, it's big. mostly Americans. Do they still make it oh, even yeah. after the earthquake? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. they're up and running again. Okay, no, I, it's very good. I actually tasted when I was discerning with the monks in Norcia. I tasted the very first homebrew batch of this beer about oh, ten years ago. Look at that! It was called Cashin Stout, named after their founder, Father Cashin. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was delicious even then, and now it's like amazing. Yeah. John Cashin is a very interesting author, you know. He is someone who... Not to be... Yeah. So just for the listener's sake, uh, different than Father Cashin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Named, oh, uh, named after John Cashin. Yeah. Yes, certainly not the same. John Cashin, right. you know, went off to Egypt, uh, you know, and uh, learned as much as he could from the Desert Fathers. And essentially, he's the one who brought back the tradition of... Um, you know, the Desert Fathers to the Latin West. And, you know, we have these two very lengthy treatises written by John Cashin, you know, the Institutes and the Collations, you know, and they really are what brought, you know, the wisdom of Evagrius Ponticus and all these other Desert Fathers to the West. And and through Cashin, you know, you get to the rule of Benedict, you see. So, right. and, you know, the whole tradition of... What's the theological problem with Cashin? I think, isn't he thirsty for some rehabilitation in certain circles and there's some theological controversy with him i'm not sure what you have in mind i don't here. i don't know either i can't remember i'm not sure what okay you have in mind i'll have to edit this yeah. part of the podcast out there. Mm-hmm. yeah uh all right what else you want to talk about anything oh my goodness it's up to you here. that's pretty good yeah see you know the only thing that when I go to, let me just say this, please. Actually, this may be interesting. You know, put I go a, to put this, a bow on it. Yeah, I go to these conferences. You know, like I go to the American Academy of Religion, etc., and I give papers. I actually did give a paper. Oh, that was such a long time ago in Chicago, which was like kind of like the first version of this paper that you just discussed. And I always get some pushback from the audience because sometimes of course. I get people from the in the audience who are trying to tell me. Yes, but in practice, then everything is the same. 
You see, there's right. always this kind of attempt right. to say that right. I'm just trying to make this kind of uh, sterile theoretical distinction, but really the practice is ultimately. Do you ever come across identical. people that are first attracted to this paper because they think it is going to be a sort, yes, a sort of I reconciliation so. between Buddhism and Christianity? Yeah, I think so. You know, and uh, it, no, no, I shouldn't say. Yes, I do. I have encountered people who, and then they're, they're just, and then they can be flabbergasted to find yes, out what you did to them. I mean, you know, this whole the first book that I wrote already quite some time ago, you know, Maximus and Tsongkhapa, actually does really emphasize the differences, you know, quite extensively, especially in the last chapter. And I did have a review who was quite critical because this person said, well, this is not the way to do dialogue because <laughs> you're just talk, you just end with all these differences and then, you know, this is somehow not nice. But you see, well, he used rather stronger language than that. But, you know, I think, you know, in a way, if you don't do that, you're not even really honest to the tradition that you're exploring. Because even a traditional Amen. Buddhist person, Amen. even a traditional Buddhist person would not want his or her tradition to be reduced to, you know, something which is, he would not recognize. Right. You know, what struck me in your paper, uh, something that, that was just beautiful to me was, was this notion that in Christianity, the Christian worships the true body of Christ. Like his, it is his true body. That we mm -hmm. worship. So I can say, I worship the body of Christ. And mm -hmm. in that is contained the whole. The fullness of the divinity. The fullness. Whereas in Buddhism or really any Eastern religious tradition, mm -hmm. there is this uh, total dualism between the spiritual and then the apparent projections into the temporal, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, they wouldn't even say that there is a dualism. They would say that there is a dualism only if you don't understand that everything is empty. Right. You know, but right. Uh, right. So even beyond that. But I understand right. what you want to yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. And so for that reason, the, the temporal order is just utterly meaningless, emptiness. It can merely be... Merely apparent, as you said, a convention. Uh, it can be instrumentally useful for the achievement of enlightenment, but it doesn't have an, an ultimate value in itself. Mm. Certainly not. Which is why you don't just kill yourself immediately. Of course not. You know, in fact, you're not supposed to do that. Right. So, you know, traditional Buddhist ethics is actually much closer to traditional Christian ethics than you might think, you know, because, I mean, traditional in Buddhist practice. ethics... Yes, but in see, traditional Buddhist ethics, for instance, very strongly condemns abortion, for instance. Sure. Uh, even contraception, in fact, because it's it's a form of um, self-indulgence, you know. And, uh, so uh, you will see that um, you know there are many points of contact within the different ethical systems. You see, because again, here you have really a reflection of natural law, you know, that mm. uh, is universal. You know, so certain things are really present in all traditions. You know, so if I were a Buddhist and you were talking to me right now, and you were aware as you are of these fundamental differences, but also aware as you are of the commonalities, mm -hmm. uh, mutual understandings that we might share. What do you think is the key to engaging me or for our listeners that want to engage and uh, evangelize really? So the, if you were a Buddhist, yeah, so you're asking me what would be the key yeah, yeah. point? How do we convert the Buddhists? Well, you know, what you have to do is to sort of articulate what you believe 
in a way that makes sense to the person you're talking to, you know. And I think ultimately this is also one of the, well, advantages of comparative theology because, you know, if you don't really understand what the other person believes, you're not really even going to be able to talk to the other person in a way that makes sense to them. Sure. You see. Which is why, it, you know, it also, it is important to actually learn about the religious beliefs of the author in order to engage in a conversation, you see. Right. So then, you know, you have to say, yes, but our understanding of the incarnation is different from what you believe about the manifestation of the Buddha in time, you know. Hmm. And that would be, you know, the, I think the starting point. I'll tell you one thing, you know. In October of last year, I went to Pistoia in Tuscany uh, because I have organized this international conference on Ippolito Desideri, who was a Jesuit from this town, you know, who in the early 18th century went to Tibet. And he was the first uh, Westerner to learn Tibetan and really engage in interreligious dialogue with the Tibetans. There had been other, in fact, when he arrived, there were already a number of capuchins there, but they actually didn't know any Tibetan and they worked through interpreters and they were just doctors. And then there had been other Jesuits who had been there earlier, but they hadn't really learned Tibetan. But he was the first person who actually really learned Tibetan. And he wrote quite a few treatises uh, of Christian theology in Tibetan. Very interesting. And, you know, he was a very intelligent man. And well, he, his accomplishment was really extraordinary because what he did was he kind of articulated the Christian message in a way that made sense to these Tibetans, you know. So he really learned that tradition very, at great depth. So he could finally explain to them what he as a Christian actually believed hmm. in a way that made sense to them. And he could only do it because he actually learned what they believed first. So this is why I think it, it's in, because, you know, some more traditional Christians say, we don't really need to learn about what other people really believe, you know, because we have the fullness of the truth. Well, yes, but, you know, if you actually really want to engage other people in a conversation, you have to know what they believe. Otherwise, you won't be able to have this real conversation. If you were talking to Siddhartha, who's, who's the Buddha before he was the Buddha? Gautama Buddha, I would say. Siddhartha. You're thinking about Herman Hesse, the novel, I guess, you know. But, no, no, yeah. Siddhartha Gautama. Oh, Gautama Buddha. Okay. Gautama, Gautama, yeah. Uh, if you had to translate for him St. John's word logos what would that be to him? Well you know the word dharma actually is not very different from the word logos because mm. dharma actually means um, well dharma is a term that uh, somehow transcends the boundary between the epistemological and the ontological in the same way as the word logos mm. transcends the boundary between the ontological. Would this be similar to the Tao? Yes. Okay. In a sense, because the Dharma is the law, but it's also the structure of the universe. So maybe that would be the common ground philosophically, would be, I mean, to start with the logos, the Dharma, the Tao, but then, but then, uh, that's sort of the, convey but, a a uh, actual a principle of actualization, like a fullness. Rather. But where the difference is really crucial is that the logos is ultimately personal, you know, according to the Christian tradition. You see, because but, the logos becomes yes, yes, but according to the person of Christ. But but Saint John uses this word that's uh, it's a Greek word that's impersonal. It's the the underlying it comes from the Stoics, you know, force yeah. of uh, a principle of being mm. and. And so I'm not sure where, I mean, you know, and I'm like, I'm not an expert, you are on Buddhism, but where the turn toward nothingness is made, whereas the Greeks, 
make a turn toward being. Or plenitude, you know, you could say. Right, plenitude, yeah, that fullness of in being. In the Christian yes. tradition, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, okay, so then, you know, again, you have uh, a term that serves as a sort of semantic bridge between the traditions. But, you know, the semantic bridge between the tradition does not erase the ontological difference between what these different words actually hinted. Say that one more time. So, you know, this language actually allows you to sort of bridge the gap between you and the author, you know, so you can engage in a conversation. But is the, the, the analogy between the use of these different terms does not eliminate the fact that these terms really have very different connotations because the Logos points towards the plenitude of being. Uh, whereas the Dharma does not point towards the plenitude of the being. Dharma the Dharma does not. Actually, uh, you know, is... Uh, so there's no word that we could have for the Buddha, you know, that he would understand that would be... Not fully as the Logos. An, under, an underlying principle of being and order and harmony. There's nothing like Well, that. no, the Dharma does serve as an underlying principle of order and being and harmony, but it but is an There's no understanding of... Plentitude. plentitude. Yeah, it's not plentitude, no. It's an empty order. It's an empty order, yes. So? So it's a conventional order that exists. That's so while sad. It's empty at the same time. Of course, it's different from the. This is interesting because, um, you know, the uh, it's definitely di- more difficult just historically, right, to, um, to convert those in the East than it is the Occidental, you know, it, it, that are in that Occidental pipeline. And maybe the commonality of the logos is as pointing toward plenitude. You have a very different way of thinking. You see, you know, there's a oh, we do as Westerns. I mean, something we didn't discuss this at all, and maybe you don't want to go into that at this point. But you know, for instance, the Aristotelian tradition that Aquinas actually retrieves, but not just Aquinas, even the earlier Greek fathers, the Cappadocians and Athanasius before them, you know, really emphasizes the notion that God is the first cause. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, even if you read Contra Arius by, by Athanasius, you know, he does talk about that. And when Desideri goes to Tibet in the 18th century, he's really astounded to discover that the Tibetans really just don't seem to believe that the first cause is necessary because they don't believe in the necessity of a first cause. You see, let's, let's do it. I mean, uh, our listeners have probably stopped listening. It's very late for them. But let's just, you know, you play devil's advocate. You be Buddha, mm. I'll be a Greek. Anyone, you name it, Heraclitus. Yeah, maybe Socrates. This is interesting, right? Because even before Socrates, you you have this notion, just really groundbreaking in the history of thought. You know, Heraclitus, all is fire. Thales, all is I don't know, air, water. I can't remember which one he was. But this notion of all is, right? Like like something constitutes the fullness of being, and the fullness of being is real. You're saying there's nothing like that in any Eastern current? Uh, I'm not really generalizing now because there are some Hindu traditions that we okay. actually talk about that. But now I'm just talking about Hinduism. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking about Buddhism right now. Yeah. So I don't think you could really talk about that. Now, let me just correct perhaps what I just said. You know, in some Tibetan traditions, you know, I had a colleague who was a Dominican who actually wrote a thesis about that. You know, some people talk about the Buddha nature as being ontologically full. Ooh. So there is this Tibetan author, Dol Popa, who does teach that uh, the Buddha nature is ontologically full. This is the... What's, so what's his... Uh, when, when is he? What's his date? I believe he's 15th century, but now, you know, I should probably okay. check this. So he's like a Buddhist that. Protestant. 
Uh, he's a Buddhist sort of idiosyncratic thinker, let's say. Okay. You know, and he teaches this theory called the uh, Zhengtong, which means like the fullness of being, mm. whereas other authors teach the emptiness of the, of, uh, the Buddha nation. Where was he located? Rangtong, he was Tibetan. He was Tibetan. Yeah. So, you know, you have this whole debate between Tsongkhapa, who teaches the Rangtong theory, and Dolpo. What happened to him? I guess Buddhists Rangtong. never killed their heritage. No, no, they didn't, you know, but it was marginal, and it was never really very popular, you know. Okay. And, you know, some but people... you still know about him. Yeah, we do know. Later. And, for yeah. instance, Desideri knows about Dolpopa because, in a way, he thought that his idea of the Buddha nature as being full, like Zhengtong, is closer to the idea of the divine nature being the plenitude of being. Sure. You know. And that's a little more palatable. Yeah. You, you can sell that. A but lot that easier. notion yeah. is not very mainstream, you know, within within okay. Buddhism, you know. So it remains sort of marginal. But largely you don't find that. Largely you have this idea of Rangtong. You know. How is it um, In fact Desideri uses yeah. the term Zheng as uh, which is used by Dolpopa to indicate the fullness of the Buddha nature to develop a, a, a Tibetan term for the Christian God, mm-hmm. which is different from the Sanskrit term Deva, which is used for the Hindu deities, because he didn't want to use that because he thought that otherwise the Tibetans would confuse the Christian God with the Hindu gods, and he didn't want them to do that. Wow. You know, so... Huh. How How is it logically tenable that... Uh, this sort of anti-ontology held by the Buddhists. How do you, because I mean, you and I are talking here, so it's self-evident that something exists, even if you're just in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, which you probably are. This is clearly my dream, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and you know, I'm a solipsist. Still, there's something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Even if I, it's you know, it's completely obscure, right? Even, Paul would say it's obscure. We're looking through cloudy glass right now, but there's still something. Hmm. How does a Buddhist argue with that? Uh, he doesn't argue with that. Oh, he of course, Buddhists say, don't argue, but... No, they do argue a lot, I assure you. They do <laughs> argue a lot. Oh, no, 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 no. They do argue a lot, but they will just say, oh, yes, of course, but this is only a conventional reality. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's, that's a cheap excuse. I mean, it, like, that's my point. As I started there, even if it's a conventional reality... Like, even if this is just, uh, you know, the light reflecting off of a projector screen, there's still the bulb shooting that light, mm. right? And Buddhists would even deny that. They would say the bulb is there, but it's also conventional. Right. And whatever is projecting that is also conventional. Yeah. So do we just need to get these people to read the allegory of the cave? Like, there is a sun shining. It's you might, but then they would say that even the sun is conventional. And, you know, but, in a way, you always keep just sort okay, of eliminating but, but this question. Am I, am, I, am I wrong to find that just really intellectually cheap? Like, if it's all conventional... <sighs> I don't know what, what it's it, cheap. It's uh, just a very different way of thinking. Let me just say this. You know, when Desideri went to uh, the monastery of Serra, which was one of the largest uh, Buddhist uh, monastic universities in the in Tibet in the early 18th century, and it's still there. I mean, I was there three years ago. Um, you know, and monks have a lot of debates in the courtyard. So, see, they do debate a lot. You know, uh, he dis- mm. Desideri was very surprised to discover that the monks there, you know, one of the main sort of, you know, they do this sort of um, training debates for novices when the monks actually start, you know, their training, you know, this is the Gelu Goder of monks. You know, they have to, you know, debate the non-existence of a creator God. There's this very strong sense that if you follow reason, you are going to sort of, to reject the existence of a creator God or reject the existence of a first cause. And he's very surprised because he had just been trained in the Collegio Romano 
you know, you have to remember he was trained around the year 1700. You know, he was born, I think, in 1685. Uh, yeah, something like that. Uh, and of course, he trained in Rome. In Rome, yes. You know, before going off to to, to Tibet. Mm-hmm. You know, he first went to India, etc. And of course, he, you know, counter Reformation era. What do you do? You study Aquinas. You study the manuals. You study Suarez, and uh, you know, you also do debates. And you know, you know, you're taught that if you follow reason, you are going to believe in the existence of a first cause. And then he comes there and he discovers that his monks actually believe that if you follow reason, you're going to deny the existence of the first cause. And he goes off. Slow down, you got an accent. Yes, I'm going too quick. You know, so, you know, uh, this day discovered that his monks don't believe in the existence of the first cause. You see? Right. And whereas he had been trained to believe that if you follow reason properly, you are going to affirm the existence of the first cause. Yes. Yes. And that's what the, that, and that's what I'm thinking anyway. Of course, right. you see. So then, you know, he ends up writing a whole treatise called The Dawn, you know, as you know, the sun rising, uh-huh. where he explores this whole notion of a first cause, you know, and tries to explain that their belief about the absence of a first cause is ultimately untenable because they believe in the existence of a process of causes and effects, but they don't believe in a first cause. And he says, where does this process come from? See? Right. Uh, yeah. And he writes his whole treatise. You know, so logically, that. it is yeah. untenable. But yeah. then, of course, they deny that because they say, yes, but we don't need it. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, but I guess what I would argue is that that's not as tranquil as one might imagine Buddhism to be, ultimately. In, in, in other words, ultimately, that's rather horrifying. That is, that is logically, it's impossible, right, that there's no first cause. And that's demonstrable, apart from divine revelation. And this is sort of the difference between a thriller movie, you know, like a suspense movie and a horror movie. Like a suspense movie, the improbable happens, you know, like a guy jumps out from the the shadows and you scream, you know, ah. But that's not nearly as scary as like a girl crawling on the ceiling, which is logically impossible like you don't crawl on ceilings and that's why something in the mind is i mean it's really an echo of hell right and so it seems to be the case that buddhism uh terminates in this sort of really horrific uh anti-reality and the entire pursuit which is voluntary right it's a decision Nirvana is is a is a voluntary pursuit uh, toward emptiness, right? Away from it's it's a voluntary pursuit away from being, and that yeah. that I I or perhaps I would the, argue is horrifying. Or the idea is that you have to become comfortable with this absence of being more than until you wake up. Yes, you know the idea is that you know you know they it's very interesting you know the Buddha actually knew that uh, if people really appreciated or understood what he was saying, they would be horrified yes. or they would be afraid. Then, you know, people kind of lost sight of what he actually really meant. Does that know? mean, he did know Thomas, that. Does, does that mean that because I'm really horrified by it, I really understand what of the Buddha... Of course, is. yes. You see, look at that. So I'm like, level course, up you know, on So deep, you right. know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know. But the, he thought, well, but if you kind of grow in wisdom, you will come to terms even with his horrifying truth. It's funny, but I've always like imagined 
I shouldn't say this, but like if Buddhists are in hell, they've like learned to enjoy the flames, you know? Well, they would say that the flames are just conventional. Right, so. exactly. So they're like impervious. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, we leave it to God. I think so. Good. Thank you for being here. That yes, was, thank that was you. was great. We'll it was have a very to, interesting conversation. You need to come back. <laughs> thank you. We'll finish this beer and this conversation. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, that was Dr. Thomas Katoy, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Good night. This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. For more information, visit magnusinstitute.org. That's M-A-G-N-U-S Institute.